when I finished Army of the Dead, um, I finished Army and the guys at Netflix were like, uh, what else do you want to do? And I said, do you want to do another Army movie? And I was like, yeah, I kind of want to do a sequel to Army, but I have this other idea and I don't know if you guys are into it or not, but it's like a big space opera and it's kind of like... Uh, Seven Samurai in space. But it was rated R. <laughs> I said, it's got to be rated R. There's no way around that. And they were like, okay, but what if it wasn't rated R? <laughs> Hello. And welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, revolutionaries band together and defend their land from total annihilation in director Zack Snyder's sci-fi drama, Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire. The film tells the story of Korra, who crash lands on a moon at the edge of the universe and finds new life among peaceful farmers. But when peace is traded for bloodshed, Newly formed revolutionaries must learn to fight together to defend their land and survive the war on their moon. In addition to Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, Snyder's other directorial credits include the feature films Army of the Dead, Justice League, 300, Sucker Punch, Watchmen, and Dawn of the Dead. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Snyder spoke with director Louis Leterrier about filming Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. And then people were running out of Hall H, saying, you have to come see, come, come. Like they were literally saying, come see something, come see something, I've seen something amazing. And that was, I walked in, ran in, and saw the trailer for 300. You kept, remember this thing? Oh, they, right. they ask you to play it over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah, that was fun. Actually, yeah, I do remember that. It was weird because we, uh, the tradition of playing the trailer twice, um, I, I wasn't really familiar with, or I didn't even know if it was a thing, but um, I do remember this, like, um, we played it twice and everyone went crazy, so we played it again. And, and I was like, three times feels like <laughs> yeah. enough now. People Shouldn't can't. we stop? And then I think we played it one more time. Yeah. But yeah, it was, um, but yeah, it was fun. It was actually really fun because, you know, it's um, a rare thing to have a, um, like an, a piece of, uh, of work that is, you know, where you're mainlining it to the correct audience. You know, it's hard to. That's a hard thing to do because normally people, casual viewers or whatever, there was zero casual viewers in that audience. Well, at first, but then, yes, well. We, I but was I just mean viewer. in general. In general, yes, yes absolutely. The, the, people ran in and we enthusiasm. discovered the power of Zack Snyder. I mean, literally oh, people. Kind of, no, it's really, we discovered, you know, the great director. We'd seen, you know, we'd all seen Donna the Dead, but then this was completely different. This was so powerful. And I think what you have just experienced again today is you know it's the same thing. I've I've watched it. At, you know, I told Zach I've watched it three times. Once to watch it, another one to study it. And then my kid was watching it, and we, I watched it with my kids. And I watch it through the eyes of a thirteen-year-old, and this is incredible. He's ex- it's Zack Snyder, a thousand percent Zack Snyder. It's it's fantasy. It's visual characters that you love, anti-heroes. This is this is absolutely amazing. So let's talk about it, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. 
So where did, where did it come from? Is, you know, when, when did you I have this idea? I think that, um, you know, I've, I've said, I don't know, famously at this point, I've said it a hundred times, so probably not famously, but to me it's famously because I've said it a hundred times. Um, but uh, it comes from... I, I, there's a window of time for me between 1977 when Star Wars came out and probably 1987 um, when I was a sophomore at Art Center. Sophomore, I don't think they really do it that way. Second term um, at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena where I went to film school. And um, it really is a, all about, for me, a comment on that window, sort of cinematic window um, for me, the kind of the... The, the time that kind of shaped my aesthetic and my, and a lot of it, frankly, um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the, of the uh, adult illustrated fantasy magazine, Heavy Metal. And that, that, that magazine had a huge effect on me because it was, my mother had gotten it for me as a child by accident. Um, I was way too young for this, but she thought it was a comic book. And so she got me a subscription to it and I had it and it was like full of sex and violence and insane and nudity and just everything you'd hope for as a 13 year old. It was like right on the money. And I kept it completely secret from her uh, in the sense that I didn't let her look inside of it. Although every now and then she would see a cover, it would arrive in the cover. She would look at the cover and be like, what is this? This, is, this looks pretty racy. And I'd be like, no, no, it's just, you know, cover art, they go crazy. Don't, don't worry about it. It's not whatever. Boring. I'm just throwing it under my bed. And then I was like, and I, you know, and it was, it really, and then when the movie came out, the heavy metal film, the animated film, I was just, I just thought that was like the coolest thing ever. I remember, you know, but, but in that window of movies, you have like Blade Runner, you have um, the heavy metal, you have, well, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. You know, you really, it really, um, it really, you know, Conan the Barbarian, uh, the Melius version, which is like, you know, one of my, is an amazing movie. Uh, John Borman's Excalibur had a huge effect on me. I remember seeing that movie. And like, you know, the scene where um, Uther and Grain are making love and he has his armor on still. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, you know, it's just stuff like that. They just, you know, they really, um, you know, uh, just lands hard on, uh, on you when you're at that sort of impressionable age where it's still, in a weird way, the thing I love about like Conan and Heavy Metal and, and John Borman's Excalibur is they're not, for kids, you know, like there's something really cool about, I mean, I saw them as a kid and I really loved them, but they weren't really made for kids. You know, they, I, it was a, it's like American Werewolf in London or whatever, like these movies that you, you saw when you were too young, but that aesthetically really kind of rocked you because you know, it was like, it's a different experience now because you could see, you know, movies are on streaming or they're, you know, they're all over. You can get them where, you know, when, when it was a theater only experience, it was a much different to get into a movie, to sneak into a movie, an R rated movie and see it was a big deal. And, and it, and it, and, and, and you felt like you were stealing something sort of from, 
from the world and, and or you were you were privy to a mystery or to a thing that other people weren't. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's kind of where the idea certainly is, it's Genesis. And then um, and of course, you know, and in that window, I saw movies like Seven Samurai. I became a Kurosawa fanatic and I just loved uh, I remember I would have my parents. I, I think it was like Throne of Blood um, was playing at our like local, like a retrospective theater, you know, in Japanese with English subtitles. And I was like 13 years old and I like made my parents take me and drop, they dropped me off because they were like, we don't want to go to this movie. Like, you're insane. We don't, it's like snowing. And I was like, no, no, it's cool. Come back in three hours and get me. Um, so it was just a cool, um, you know, that was when, you know, I just really started to just love movies and, um, but did you did you start jogging down ideas and writing down? I had so when I was at Art Center, I had a class. Uh, we had this one class. Um, I was talking to Larry Fong about it the other night because Larry was in my class, and um, it was a it was a pitch class where you had to go in and pitch an idea for a movie. And I think I said like, "What if it was like Seven Samurai in space?" And uh, I remember my teacher was like, "That's actually not a horrible idea." Um, and he was pretty, his Mike Onaman was pretty, he was a pretty tough character um, when it came to that sort of thing. You would pitch in movies and he'd be like, that's horrible. Get out of here. You know, like he was really, he was really, really rough teacher. He would say, you know, like he would, you, if you were pitching him an idea, he was always very, like in a good way, critical, but in a really sort of, you could be a slightly softer, you know, we're just kids, we don't, you know, just a little bit of compassion would be cool, but now he did zero. Um, but, but you like this one every now and then he would go like, you know what? That's not a horrible idea. That idea is not complete crap. So, all right, next who else, you know, and I remember getting that little, maybe that little piece of encouragement that kept it alive. And so I had it kind of boiling for a while and I would jot some ideas down and then um, in, uh, we were working on the edit editorial of, um, uh, Man of Steel, and I remember saying to, I said to Chris, Chris Nolan, uh, in the edit, in the edit, I was like, you know what? I had this idea where I was going, I'm going to call Kathleen Kennedy, and I'm just going to say, I'm going to picture this Star Wars movie. I have an idea for because at that time, that was before the sale. It was kind of after the um, prequels. Star Wars was kind of quiet. It was kind of in a quiet mode, and I remember thinking, like, they need me. Like, this is, a, this is cool. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix Star Wars. Um, also, because I had some issues with some of the decisions. Like, I'm not going to say what it was, but, like, I just felt like they had gone astray a bit. Um, you know, yeah. I know that's sacrilegious to say, <laughs> but that, that was my feeling. How did that meeting go, though? It went it, well. It went well. Actually, it went really well at the time. Uh, I pitched it, and she was like, that sounds really cool. I... I, I remember saying something like, you know, is there any way it could be rated R, you know? <laughs> is that a thing? And she went, I'm not sure. <laughs> and I'm like, but it's, you're saying there's a chance. Um, <laughs> and she said, uh, well, let's just, we'll talk more and see how it evolves. And I was like, okay. So I left the meeting thinking like, they're down for an R-rated movie for one. And it's just going to be like, some Jedi's like going nuts. So that was like, so I was pretty up on the, the, Star the idea. Um, I remember I went home, my wife is my producing partner and she said, you're crazy. They're never going to do this. 
you're completely nuts and you're delusional because they're going to, you, because like at the time I was working, you know, Superman as a IP and I was having a little bit of a, you know, it's a, he's a tough character uh, to change. And I wasn't trying to change him. I was just, I was trying to just sort of push aspects of him around a little bit. And she goes, do you think, do you, do you know what Star Wars is going to be like? It's going to be a disaster for you. Um, and so in the middle of this whole thing, I, they did, I did have a second meeting where ILM had done all these paintings, you know, sort of reflecting what my idea would look like in the Star Wars universe. And I was like, oh, let's see, this is cool. Um, and then like, I, like two days later, I read in the trades that they sold, <laughs> that Disney now owns it. And I was like, oh, what? That's weird. <laughs> no one said anything about that. Heads up would have been cool of some small amount. And then I, and then of course they were like, look, we love what you, your idea, but we have this, we're going to go in and we're going to do something else. Um, and I was like, okay, great. And my wife was like, see, this is the best thing that ever happened to you. This is great news. You're, you're fine. Um, plus when were you going to do that movie and you have like, you're busy. Um, <laughs> and so it just kind of fell back a little bit, you know, I kind of disappeared for a while. I would always still think about, it. I would talk to her about it. I'd say, you know, you know, what if this, and she'd say, okay, you're still ranting about that space movie. Um, but you know, and so it was tenacious and then it ended up, when I finished Army of the Dead, um, I finished Army and the guys at Netflix were like, uh, what else do you want to do? And I said, do you want to do another Army movie? And I was like, yeah, I kind of want to do a sequel to Army, but I have this other idea and I don't know if you guys are into it or not, but it's like a big space opera. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's Seven Samurai in Space. But it's rated R. But it was rated R. <laughs> I said, it's got to be rated R. There's no way around that. And they were like, okay, but what if um, it wasn't rated R? <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, those are the conversations. That's where we, ca we came to this. I mean, I will say just in, you know, full disclosure, the, and not that it's not disclosed, but, uh, you know, the sort of the, the conversation I had with the studio was that, they read the script. Obviously, it was an R-rated script. It was 200 pages the first time I, I... They were like, you weren't kidding when I handed them the phone book of the script. And they said, 200-page script, okay. Um, well, obviously, we're not making a 200-page script into a movie, especially this crazy R-rated... You basically made heavy metal... Uh, like live action heavy metal movie. This is like everyone's naked. This is crazy. Um, and so I, there was a cool, but, but they were really cool. Netflix was cool. I look, I just finished justice league. You know, I'd had my justice league experience, my BVS experience, Watchmen. I had done this. I, look, I have this career where for whatever reason, I end up with a director's cut of every movie. I have this idea that it's not, it's not, I, I don't encourage it 100% as a career path, um, except for it's worked for me from an artistic standpoint. I feel like um, my relationship to um, the, uh, the studio was that 
I would do a version of the movie. Now, you really, I had done a, a director's cut for, um, for Dawn of the Dead, right? Because I was a big Ridley Scott fan, of course, as everybody is. And I said, well, Ridley does director's cuts, so that's what I'm going to do. You know, and so I, and, and I had, had an, not an issue, but the things they, there's things they wanted me to cut. The studio wanted me to cut, which is completely normal, uh, that I just was like, that's a mistake. Like, it, like, it's not as good. It's not as good. And so they, I realized there was a part of the studio called home video. I don't know if you're familiar, but at the time, home video was across the street and they didn't care what was in the movie. They actually liked the weird parts of the movie and they just were like, more is more. And so I walked across the street to them and they, I said, hey, I have this idea for a director's cut. Is that a thing? And they said, absolutely. We love that because that gives us a second kick at the can and it's a cool way to make more money off the movie. Everyone, you know, there'll be more opportunity. So I said, great. And so we, we did it. The funny thing is, I think Dawn of the Dead was the last movie that Universal Studios cut the negative for. You know, now they don't cut the actual negative. They cut the negative. So there's actually, I couldn't do the exact director's cut I wanted because the frames were missing. You know, they, when they cut the neg, when they cut the neg, they lose a frame, right? And so I couldn't restore it exactly. I think in retrospect now, we could make the frame. I could make that frame. I know how to make, I could fill it. You know, you could, I could do it. Couldn't do it then. Um, but uh, so... That was my first experience. Then um, when I did 300, we just frankly didn't have the money to do a director's cut of that movie. Like it literally we spent every dime. That was it. I shot, we, everything I shot is in the movie because <laughs> it literally was like a 60 day shoot and we just, we squeezed everything out of that thing. But then when I went to do Watchmen, the movie was l shorter than I thought because the length of Watchmen was based on IMAX at the time. The IMAX length for a movie was like two hours and 26 minutes, something like that. I forget, but it's something around there. And that's exactly the length of Watchmen because it fit on the reel. So it was cut to the length of the reel. Um, and they, it was even so close that the guys had said, like, if there was moisture in the projection booth, the film would fall off because it, you know, would be a little thicker because of the moisture. So it, the film would fall on the floor. And so that was what the parameter, that was my parameters for, um, for Watchmen was literally the length that they could do. So when I went back to finish the movie, uh, my way, again, walked across to home video and they were like, yeah, whatever you want to do, we'll do three versions of the movie. They, I ended up, I think, I think there are three versions. Um, and so I was able to kind of, that was really my first experience with like real, like, encouragement from the studio. And then I really got a cut of the movie that I really thought was correct. Um, so it really was this, that started the conversation for me with, um, with home video or with the, and I really think that, you know, for me, the Watchmen cut, um, BVS, uh, Justice League course, um, those were the real conversations that I had had with, with this whole director's cut notion of, of making a version of the movie that's outside. Now, the thing that Netflix has done is that they said to me, like from the beginning, and I've never had this experience, 
well, why don't we give you some extra money and set scenes aside and allow you to have the director's cut run parallel to the, not be a reaction. You know what I mean? Like, cause all the other director's cuts are just me reacting to like the studio getting like noted and then freaking out and then running to the to home video to save me. Um, and so that, so that's going to be later on. You'll, you'll in the summer, we're going to, you'll get to see what I pitched them basically. <laughs> and then you'll get to be the, you'll get to pretend to be the studio executive and go like, Oh geez. Uh, yeah, I see. I see what I see. What, I see what I see. What they mean, but um. So, so that's the full Odyssey. I'm sorry about the rambling answer. <laughs> no, but that's actually very good. That's very <laughs> a good rambling. That's very interesting. So, so you just turn in the pages and and the script and then just shoot, right? You don't have a version that's like I need to shoot my PG-13 version today and maybe do I get my R-rated? It was an interesting yes. It was an interesting process because basically also the 200 page script that is um, also problematic. Um, there was a conversation about like, well, should we just cut it? The studio really wanted a two hour movie. I understand it. It makes sense in some way. I, I've been pressured by every studio I've ever worked for my entire career to make movies that are two hours long. This is the first time I think I really actually did it. Um, but, um, so, so the, the question was how, how to make the 200 page script, um, two hours, you know? seems problematic. Uh, and it, and it was, I, I kind of knew I, I, I went with, uh, I, I have my two writing partners, uh, Kurt and Shay, um, are super great guys. I've known them forever. Kurt, I've known Kurt, Kurt was my, in the commercial world, Kurt, I met Kurt. He was my dolly grip, um, in, uh, the commercial world. And he's an amazing guy. And I, I remember like, you know, he would just, he would sit on the dolly, like reading Aristotle's poetics and just being like the coolest guy that I knew. And I'd just be like, what's your deal? And he was like, what? Like, what's up? You know? And, uh, so then, uh, so I've known him, you know, literally since, uh, like 19, I think 92 or three, I met him. Um, so yeah, we've been, I've, yeah. He's been my buddy for a long time. But, but Shay's 12. And Shay is, is literally 12 years old. He he comes over to my house and like he'll, I, like I'm drinking whiskey and he'll be like, I can want one of those. I'm like, no, you can't have whiskey. You're a child. Children are not allowed whiskey. Um, but he's actually just a genius. So, and really fun and super smart. And I think he's, I think he's a little older than he looks, but he does look, yeah, yeah. he does look very young. I don't know if he's here. Is he here? I don't, I don't want him to get mad at me, but he's, <laughs> um, but so, yeah. So I met with the two of them and I said, what do we do to the script to make it, you know, 90 pages. <laughs> and, uh, we had a, we had a roadmap. To, we, we, we did on the dry erase, like, okay, this is what we'd have to do. We'd have to cut. This is how we'd cut it. And I was like, that's insane. Like, that's, what is that? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> that's like a crazy movie. It's, it's, it, you know what it is? It just like, it, what it does is it makes the movie very much, um, you can just kind of beat it out. Like anyone could do it. If you could, if you gave you, if I gave you a two hour timeline and said, these are the events that need to happen within that two hour timeline, you'd have to go like, okay, so we have five minutes, uh, to meet Cora. We have, you know, uh, 18 minutes, uh, no, another five minutes, uh, t 12 minutes for noble to come. And then we have like 
40 minutes less, 30 minutes to collect the team then be back. Cause you can imagine what happens in the second movie. They come back and there's a huge war. <laughs> so, you know, the third act is them fighting. So you have two acts to do, you know, what we did basically in, in actually much, this is like middle of the second act. So wait, so wait, 200, <laughs> the 200 page script is the one movie or? Two, or so we just so okay. took the 200 page script and chopped it in half. Okay, chopped yeah. it in half. Okay, we, got we made Gondaval, which is that final scene, right, yeah. a little bit bigger. And that's it. And did you have to expand it and, or? No, we expanded it, was, it a yeah, little yeah, yeah. bit. Uh, just Gondaval, we expanded okay, yeah. a little bit. Okay, good. Um, so that, you know, it had a bit of an ending. But, you know, it is a part one. It's definitely yeah, yeah. Oh, it's definitely episodic, you know, in that way. So you have the script. Everybody agrees. It's all good. You have two movies. Off we go. And now you have to cast it. And you are one of our greatest master casters. You always find the people that, you know, you, never, you always saw in movies, but you make them into giant stars. How did you find these people who actually really fit, like they're the exact actors that, fit this this and it's not it's not like superstars they're known but oh. it's not yeah how did you find i mean i think it? probably charlie um and jimen are right, the exactly, two yeah. biggest uh star oh, no, anthony hopkins i mean honestly but you yeah. know that's just that's like a that's a curveball that yeah, yeah. Uh, i'll tell you about that in a second but um yeah it, it for me casting is like a real sort of you know instinctive thing that i've always i've always really enjoyed um And I, I uh, you know, with this movie, I really wanted Sophia from the beginning. Uh, I had seen Sophia um, in, you know, the movies that, she, you know, sort of the her normal filmography. I looked at a lot of interviews with her. I kept watching her in interviews because, like, you know, when someone's in a movie that you, you can't tell 100% who they are. So he was, uh, so it was, yeah. So Sophia's... Um, audition really sort of, I felt vindicated uh, because, you know, everyone was like, I don't know about Sophia. Like, you know what? She's kind of not. Yeah. Like, I mean, we love her, but like, she's not going to carry the whole movie is she, she's never really been in the star of a movie. And I said, well, she, trust me, she's amazing. And then like when she did her fight choreography, it was unbelievable because she's a dancer and she's incredible. Like I did one little trick to her in the audition and it wasn't rude. I promise. I, changed one piece of the in the middle of the choreography that we had her learn just to see and she got it on the first bounce and i was like whoa okay that's crazy because i've been around a lot of stunt guys and i've been around a lot of fight choreography and that was not that was not normal uh behavior and so i was like okay that was that was that is awesome you know you are yeah so the other thing that she was jokes about is that like you know when she would get distracted, I would just go like five, six, seven, eight, you know, and she would like, look at me like what? And I was like, that's cool. Like you have a trigger. <laughs> Cause you know, it was like, kind of like, uh, it's like fame or something, you know, like I needed one of those sticks, you know? Um, but yeah, it was cool. She was cool and she was great. And then, you know, um, Jaiman, I had met at art center. He came, I, I was in my basics of photography class, basics of fashion photography. This guy, Paul Jasmine, amazing photographer, taught this class up at Art Center. And he would get like, a like you know, we had like Bruce Weber and like all these people come teach us. Tarsim was in that, no, Tarsim wasn't in that class. But Tarsim was sort of adjacent to that class, I remember, because Jaiman ended up in one of Tarsim's commercials. 
And, uh, but I, in my photography class, they were like, oh, there's this French model. You should take a picture of him. He's just here from France. He's amazing. And he doesn't, he needs some shots for his book. I was like, what? So I took, a, I was like, I have the photo. I don't know. It's on my phone. I'll show it to you. You'll see it. But anyway, I have this photo of him. It's black and white. He's the most, be- you know, I was like, this guy's the most beautiful guy I've ever, he's incredible. And uh, actually he and I were going to go up to Art Center and recreate it because I want to like shoot it again because now it's like, you know, some years later, as I say, 1989, I think that was. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so that, and so I just always wanted to work with Jaiman. So I was like, what about Jaiman? He's Titus. Um, and Stas is, uh, I just saw him on an audition. I was like, yeah, he's amazing. Um, and he was great in the movie and really a great guy. Trained hard, um, you know, and Ray, i known. Um, the two Rays Porter as well. Yeah, I think it's like, I mean, Charlie, of course, is Charlie. Yeah. And he's just literally one of the nicest people I've ever been around. Just a fantastic guy. And Jenna Malone. And Malone. They're all from the yeah, repertoire. Yeah, yeah, the repertory yeah, theater yeah. group. You know, we... Okay, go on the road. Give us the Anthony Hopkins. Oh, and Hopkins. I was, <laughs> I remember talking to the, I think it was actually talking to Scott. And I said, what about, I go, you know, I need like an English, I want an English actor, like a really like someone with some gravitas to play Jimmy. And he goes, why don't you ask Hopkins? And I go, why don't I ask Hopkins? Why don't, okay. Yeah. Why don't I ask Hopkins? Yeah. That's, you know, ask Tony. He called him Tony. I didn't even know what he was talking about. I was like, who's Tony? And he's like, Anthony Hopkins. Like, when you talk to him, and you know, I'm friends with him. His name's, he called, you have to call him Tony. I was like, oh, I, I, I see, I'm not friends with him. So I did not know that. Um, and so they go, oh, we'll send him the script. And I was like, okay, go do that. So meanwhile, I'm looking at every other British actor, like, you know, that who I would be like, would be cool. Oh, Patrick Stewart. He would be cool. You know, whatever. I'm doing my whole thing. Um, and they're like, oh, Anthony likes the script. And I'm like, wait, Tony likes the script. Is that what you're saying? And so I got on the phone with him and he was like, amazing. And he's like, yeah, I love that. This sounds fantastic. And then what we did is we recorded him first. We recorded him before we recorded anyone. And he just read that. He went in, I explained him what was happening and he just read it like a radio play and was amazing and then we brought him back in when the movie was done so he could see the performance and then he kind of did he did his adr over again and he did a he did a great job he i mean it was amazing he was actually really incredibly um we used a lot of the first version to be honest because really? yeah it was just like you know instinctive and but also you animated to this yeah it's sorry it's so short this is like two, we should stay here i know i'm sorry i was like, like no, no, no that's amazing well, i want to ask about one thing actually because this is pretty amazing this is obviously could be shot i mean if a movie like this any any studio you go with a movie like this they'll send you somewhere in eastern europe somewhere you know to oh, find a tax rebate you shot down the block, right? Yeah, we shot here. We <laughs> shot this movie here, uh, Sunset Gower, and yeah, yes, you should applaud because I've That's never shot amazing. a movie. I've never shot a movie in LA. I didn't know you could. I didn't know the. <laughs> I didn't know the cameras worked here. I was like. <laughs> I thought they were like, no, you got to go to Bulgaria because that's where the cameras work better. Yeah, right. <laughs> cameras will only shoot a TV show here. Exactly. If you Three point cameras them, at a time. If you point them at a movie, they won't. They don't work. It's crazy. I was like, what? Yeah, we like we got the rebate. We got and we got the rebate. You know, yeah, the California rebate. So that was really cool. And yeah, we stayed here. We shot for 153 days, so it wasn't a short 
movie because we did shoot two movies. Um, and yeah, it was a jo- it was really incredible. Like best crew. Um, it was, you know, incre- incredible. Um, it was a lot of the guys I've worked with over the years, but had to have dragged, you know, to um, Vancouver or London or Chicago or Detroit, you know, Vancouver, you know, we went to quite a bit um, over the years. But yeah, shooting here was crazy. My bed at night. The only problem, of course, with shooting at home is that, you know, your life is right there. You know what I mean? Like you go home and then like the toilet's clogged, you know, and you have to fix it. You know, so it's like not, it's not like living on the road where it's, you know, you're, you're just a movie machine. You know, you have the other things too. You have to take the dog to the vet and stuff like that. So, well, Sorry, we have to wrap, but this, this, I mean, <laughs> I wanted to ask you a tons of questions. You shot the movie, you, I mean, you wrote, you directed, you Yeah, photographically, DP, yeah, shooting the movie is like, I, give I don't. Give me an answer, like, yeah. Give I don't know me. about, yeah, I can do it quickly. <laughs> um, I was a director cameraman for years in the commercial world. And when I went to do um, Dawn of the Dead, they were like, they don't, that's not really a thing in movies. You can't do that. You can't do both jobs. And I was like, oh, cool. It was like shooting in LA. It was the same thing. Can't shoot in LA. Can't do both jobs. Um, and I was, and I was fine with it. But the truth is, um, you know, after my experience on uh, Justice League and just sort of, I just felt like I had gotten a little bit, um, just distant from the process, you know, like the bigger the movie is when you're doing a gigantic movie, you can find yourself really kind of far away from the actors and this, like, you know, I had my video village was like, it was a hard table. It was like a full, it wasn't like a, it looked like an office, you know, that's how dug in we were. And so it was just cool to go. When I did Army, I was like, I want to shoot it myself because I just need to like, I forgot what the camera looks like or what it feels like. And, and so it was really beautiful. And really, I felt incredibly re-energized and reconnected to the process of making a movie because, you know, I was, you know, lighting and directing and shooting and it was really very intense and really immersive and incredible. And also like my proximity to the actors was really close because it was a handheld movie. So I just go like, oh, that was great. You should um, reach with your left hand because I couldn't see it. So is that cool? Okay, let's go. And then we would just go and it was just just really incredible. So when it came to Rebel Moon, I was like, okay, um, this is a super technical job, but I'm down, so let's do it. And so it was a really, it was super rewarding. I, I, I love shooting, I, and I love um, the sort of director-cameraman position. I, I know that it, that's what it's called in commercials, and I don't know what the, that's what I sort of feel like it is. I think, you know, I, I always say, like, it's a moving picture, so, like, it, it, that's what we do. And so just making shots and, like, really, you know, being just a camera dork because I am a camera dork on one hand. Like I built these, the lenses we built from scratch, they're all bespoke anamorphic lenses based on like this, the Leica range finding series of lenses. There's never been like a Leica anamorphic lens. Now there are, I have them, they're at my house. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's a really, it's really incredible. But, um, you know, I, 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 I highly recommend it. It's, it's good fun. Wow, this was amazing. <laughs> um, we have to let you go because you have... Another movie to finish, 
two director cuts. So, yeah, so yeah, I go back to work. I did say the other day, I was like, you know, it's cool. The one problem, the one downside of this is that, of making two movies, is that normally I'd go on vacation right now. You know, the movie comes out, I go to Tahiti, and it'd be like amazing. But instead, I got to go to work. Uh, tomorrow morning, um, you know, Dodie, who is my editor, like literally called me on the drive in and said, did you look at those cuts I sent you? And she doesn't sound like that, by the way. Um, <laughs> I made her sound like that woman from uh, Monsters, Inc. She's not, she's not like that at all. Um, she's, she's, she's really cool. But uh, yeah, but I, I said, I'm going to get to it tonight, I promise. So anyway, thank you guys. Appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.